0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: This week we take a look at the recent and the perennial controversy over the dress of Muslim women. The hijab or khimar has been subject to ferocious scrutiny with YouTube influencers, journalists, politicians and academics all participating in what is now a regular feature in how liberal society would like Muslims to live. We at the Thinking Muslim podcast fought long and hard about addressing the subject, but it is clear that many young Muslim women are confused, in large part because of the deluge of noise that comes their way on social networks. So to address the subject, Farhad Amin from our sister podcast, A Muslim Mum, spoke to Imana Basi, a writer and academic that recently penned a brilliant piece titled Not My Body, Not My Choice, for the online magazine Traversing Tradition. Farhad is part of the Thinking Muslim project and is currently working with a group of Muslim women writers to put together a groundbreaking book providing an intelligent critique of feminism. Inshallah, next week I shall be speaking to Farhat and Imam Iyad Hilal from America to address the wider political debates around the hijab, as well as the legislative understanding that comes from Quran and Sunnah about the khimar or the hijab.
2: As-salamu alaykum Iman, and welcome to a Muslim Mum podcast. Wabarakatuhu. Thank
3: you
2: for having me alhamdulillah um so the the title of your piece it was quite unusual you know um i've heard the slogan my body my choice before but the phrase not my body not my choice that's something you don't hear very often so could you inshallah explain why did you write this piece
3: yeah absolutely um so i think me like many other muslim girls you know when we were growing up Um, There were very few public hijabis uh, that existed in the public consciousness who could make hijab really relevant to us um, and demonstrate different techniques of wrapping it, how to pin it, um, how to wear it to different occasions. Um, And a lot of us learned a lot from them. Um, But increasingly over the past few years, what we're noticing is that many of these bloggers or influencers have begun to um, you know, take off their hijabs. And some of the rhetoric that they cite in doing so um, is that now it's important for them to speak their own truth. Um, and whatever they wear on their bodies is their own choice, right? So they echo this um, slogan of my body, my choice. And mm-hmm. what I've observed is that definitely over the past few months, particularly um, Muslim women, not just young ones, are beginning to get confused by these type of slogans, right? Is, um, what does it mean for something to be your body? Uh, and what does it mean to make your own choices in this way? Um, and so I thought it was really important to kind of address this topic. Uh, Mm -hmm. and I did so through this article that I wrote for Traversing Tradition, um, which is a publication that, um, some of my friends and I started and it really attempts to be this bridge between, um, you know, just laymen men who want to learn more about Islam and the Ummah who might not be, you know, following these influencers and might
2: not have their pulse on these day-to-day issues that we're facing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like the fact that in a website traversing tradition that um, you do, you critique, you know, ideas through a Muslim worldview that looking at ideas and then seeing, okay, modern philosophies that we are being asked to adopt that you don't just accept it that you're it, you're doing a rational critique of it and and judging does it um is it in line with islam or not and I, that's what I really liked about you know your website I did read a couple of other articles as well um so now going back to yours in particular, so you mentioned the word confusion, and I do think nowadays that if um let's say um her sister she wants to start to and she wants to find out, is hijab an obligation, you know, and then how should I wear it? I think going online is a very confusing place for us, for Muslim women now, because um, we are being told, um, you know, uh, things that contradict what has always been known in Islam. And when I say that, I mean, you know, traditional Islamic scholarship has always categorically mentioned that, you know, wearing the himar is um, an obligation and then the outer garment, the jilbab as well. But what you now have is um, people like, um, for example, Mona El-Tahawi in her book, Headscarves and Hymens. Um, it's interesting that she uh, spoke about how she used to wear hijab and then how she unveiled. And the people she cites are, um, for example, Leila Ahmed, who is a Harvard professor, and Fata Murnissi, was a Moroccan feminist. Now both of them, they're writers and they've studied the subject of women in Islam, but they're not Islamic scholars. And so, are you finding that there are people like that? You know, there's the example of Samina Ali as well, who again, she isn't a, she's not an Islamic scholar at all. She's just a writer and has a, um, she's part of a feminist organisation in in US. And so, but there's a very famous video of hers where she has convinced so many Muslim women that. Um, you, you don't need to wear hijab. So are you finding that that is also adding to the confusion? Yeah,
3: absolutely. I think they uh, there are so many women who cite these resources as implications for why uh, hijab is not mandatory. Um, I think this is a greater problem of how Islam is spoken about in the public sphere, that uh, instead of it being ulama who are you know, religion specialists, right? They are the experts in this field. Um, Instead of them leading the conversation on what Islam is and is not, or what are Islamic injunctions or what are requirements of faith, it's really these people who have a very academic background, who may have studied the sociology or the anthropology or the history of Islam, Um, Those are important fields, of course, but they are not qualified to speak on the Islamic sciences. And the problem is that they do speak very um, intelligently about these topics, right? That, you know, to the, um, you know, to the average eye, if you will, to someone who isn't well versed in these topics, they seem to be experts, right? They can quote the Quran with ease, they can mention a few hadiths, they can, you know, make these references to what we think are explicitly religious texts. And so we take them as experts on the religion. Um, and they're not that, uh, and this is something that's super, super dangerous, not just related to hijab, but Mm -hmm. in all matters of, of being. Um, and so I think like, this is something that we need to be wary of, right. Of who we learn from where we take knowledge. What does it mean for something to be true? What
2: type of appeals are they making? Mm-hmm. i'm gonna just mention this so the, the two very clear evidences in the quran where allah does tell us tell women to you know to wear the khimar uh, the head cover is surah Nur, which is surah 24 ayah 31 and then in um surah um, al-azab um which mentions the outer garment. and in um in another section of this podcast i will um we will discuss um i have a recording of um some scholars who do discuss that. So inshallah, that will be part of this podcast. But so then for if, so if we shouldn't go to, whether it's a uh, Muslim YouTuber or a, you know, um, ac- you know, academics or Muslim feminists, this is, they call themselves Muslim feminists. It's not something I'm, I'm labelling them as. So how ca- can a Muslim woman and who ha- go, Who should we go to and how do we access someone to find out on answers when, you know, to, like you said, not just hijab, anything.
3: Right. I think the most important thing to look for when you are trying to learn about your religion is um, whether that individual has a chain that connects them back to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi So um, our tradition, uh, the way we transmit knowledge is heart to heart, right? We have this in a uh, a chain of transmission, right? Where, um, a teacher teaches a student who goes on and teaches their students and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. all the way back to Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa And if they don't have that type of rigorous connection, um, you know, verifiable connection, um, and spiritual connection back to the Prophet sallallahu we should not be learning about the religion from them. Um, and that's, again, one of the biggest tragedies in our day is that, um, you know, everyone feels qualified to speak about things that they are not qualified to speak about. And God forgive me, you know, if I'm doing so right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't do that with any other field. You know, we wouldn't yeah. do that with um, medicine, for example. We wouldn't learn about um, coronavirus from a plumber, mm-hmm. you know, of what he thinks about the the pathophysiology of the disease. But we do do that with Islam. Um, and it's it's so tragic because Islam um or religion in general doesn't just have consequences for us in this world but in the next as well you know it's a salvational affair it's so so deeply important as the connection that we have with god and so we need to make sure that we're looking for uh traditionally classically trained ulama um you know who have that type of rigorous training just to give like a specific example someone that i think is really wonderful in this regard. Uh, in the U.S., uh, we have a Sheikha named Aisha Prime. Um, you know, she is an American Muslim, right? Like, she gets the context in the West. She's been classically mm-hmm. trained, and of course, like because she's a woman, she can relate to some of the unique struggles that women may face. Um, so, if someone is looking for like a specific example of who to learn from, I would definitely recommend that they you know watch her YouTube videos or you know uh, look
2: out for some of her work. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm delighted because I think this is it. There are people um, who we can turn to, um, but it, it's the um, for some reason whether it's instant gratification or we have no patience anymore. It's it's it does seem odd that we are going to YouTube to get an answer about that could affect whether we go to Jannah or Jahannam. I think that's where we need to understand it in that way. That this is like you said, it's not something light it's going to affect our Akhira. So we should, you know, inshallah, we need to give it that importance and that seriousness.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, I mean, it's a, it's
3: a worthy investment to make. mm. I think um, it's really nice that we have these like really beautiful, um, well-produced, like, two, three minute YouTube videos that, you know, give you that spiritual pick me up, or we have the, um, the Jamal that, you know, talks about one or two, um, habis, and we feel that like spiritual upliftment that's important. And that has its place. But at the same time, like, are we sitting down every day and learning something more about God, you know, because if we're not progressing forward in our relationship with him, then we're going backwards. You can't stay neutral you don't stay in the same place. Um, And so we really, and this is a self-assessment you have to do. You have to really reflect on whether you're putting the time in um, and going through a text with the teacher, um, going through a course properly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Alhamdulillah. And uh, I think nowadays, especially with the online, you know, Islamic courses, it's there now. Alhamdulillah. It's actually so brilliant. Like I'm doing one at the moment. And so it's out there. Inshallah, we just need to make the intention and, and make an effort and, if we need to spend our money on this, then that's the best thing to spend our money on, um, inshallah. Um, so now, now another thing that I've heard, and you mentioned it in your article, was that, um, okay, so let's say someone does agree that, yes, uh, wearing um, the khimar is an obligation. But then what comes next is people say, but Allah says in the Quran, there's no compulsion in religion. That's Surah 2 Ayah 256. So, um, and that's used as a justification that, to choose I can choose if I do this or not what would you what would you say about that yeah I think again
3: um you know we would never apply that type of logic to anything other than religion you know we would never say that I can choose which uh prescription medications to take if I have a certain (laughs) ailment right you would listen to the doctor you would listen to what Uh, she said, is the best plan of action for your health. Um, And so we need to do the same when it comes to our dean, right? What the ulama have said, not just right now, but for 1,400 years of our scholarship, that um, hijab is a requirement. We need to listen to that. And we need to have that type of intellectual humility to kind of yield to their expertise. And unfortunately, like we don't have that right now as we have um, a very arrogant do-it-yourself Make it yourself version of religion where I can pick up the Quran, not even read it in the classic classical Arabic text, read like a English translation, um, pick out random verses and create my own religion. Read a few hadiths and say, "Look, uh, I've I've found these justifications, and now I know what I need to do." Um, like, come on! We know that's not mm. the right approach to take towards our religion, um, and so we need that type of humility again. And that comes from again learning from those who are experts, learning from the ulama. Um, it's it's really tragic that we feel as if uh, we have those like critical thinking skills or those like critical reasoning skills to apply uh, to the religion that um, particularly for those who are in university or might have graduated from university, you learn how to analyze texts, right? You learn how to read a book, how to explore the themes, how to Um, make connections between characters and uh, ideas Um, and that's really important and that has its place but we shouldn't assume that that qualifies us to do uh, the same with the Quran especially if we are not even reading it in the actual uh, language it was revealed in. Um, but even if we can read it in classical Arabic, that doesn't mean that we have uh, command over the seerah, for example, uh, or the life of the Prophet, or that we have command over fiqh or aqidah or any of these other Islamic sciences. Um, and so, really, until we take the time to go through them, become masters of those uh, specific fields, we really should not feel qualified to make any type of um, prescriptions or uh, conclusions on matters of being.
2: Mm, yeah, I I completely agree, and it it and we have to be honest about that that we we aren't we are in we're not in a position. And it's interesting if someone said to me, you know, like if if you know you're not qualified to do something, can someone offered you a job or there was this a responsibility, uh, you would say no, sorry, I can't do that. So we need mm-hmm. to say that here as well. I think that. It, just have a, like be humble enough, and and it's a bit of a reality check. It's I think the way that things are, um I think it, we, it's very quick to we just get caught up in this. um Everyone's very quick to give a judgment about Islam, you know, about the Quran and Hadith, and yeah, it's it's quite puzzling, and we we just need to we stop ourselves from doing that. Even if other people are doing it, doesn't mean we have to jump in. The other Um, justification that I've heard a a number of times is that um, and this is something I hear a a lot from women in particular that um, the idea of speaking my truth um, so for example so there's now it seems to be this idea that um, where okay I my experience is my truth and so my hijab experience is my experience and you can't tell it makes me happy the way I'm wearing it. And therefore, mm-hmm. um, you know, please like please back off. Don't 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 preach or don't tell me um what I should be doing or what I shouldn't. Right. Um yeah. please to refrain. <laughs> yeah. So now it's again, this is this is used as a um, what even then it's like a way to cut off the conversation that no, sorry, we're not talking about this. I'm not gonna wear it, and it doesn't matter what you say to me. It's like, I don't even want to listen to what you're going to say to me.
3: Yeah, I think this uh, relates really well to the previous question, you know, is how we view Islam as being a very individualistic affair, um, which it is not. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala defines each one of us by the relationships we have with others, the responsibilities that we owe them, you know, that we have to them, um, and the rights that, you know they need to fulfill for us. Um, And so when we view ourselves as this like communal structure, right, as a community, not as just like the sum total of individuals, um, it really begins to challenge some of these ideas of uh, my body, my choice, like I'm going to speak my own truth and you can't say anything about it because we realize that your truth has an impact on my life, right? Um, and if each of us are just shouting our own truths at all times, um, it could create, it creates this cacophony of voices where, uh, truth itself has no value anymore. And this is kind of what we're seeing in the postmodern condition, right? Is, um, everyone makes different truth claims all the time, um, mm-hmm. Each of them have their own uh, you know, justifications or their own qualifications of why their truth is the best. And then at the end of the day, no one really knows what truth is. To give a very simple example of that, it's as if, because this is the Muslim Mom podcast, um, it's as if every mom said, my child is the best, you know, and anytime (laughs) any other mom said, well, my child is the best. You Mm. just said, no, shut up. Like my child is the best. (laughs) And you have your own qualifications of what makes your child the best. Well, she can color really well and he can ride his bike really well. And that's why, you know, my child is the best. And in the end of the day, like it means nothing with, a mom says that anymore. Like it makes her feel really good, um, but we know, like that's just mom. Something moms say. You know, it doesn't mean if we were to actually rank all the children of the world, this child would come out. You know, to be the best. So I think it's similar in this way of like everyone making their own claims of truth that this is my truth. Um, in the end, it means nothing. And I think this is why it's so important for us to learn our Islamic sciences is because they don't just teach us. Um, you know, things like fiqh and haqqida, but they teach us how to determine what is true. So for example, um, in the Hadith sciences, you learn how to evaluate um, whether a reported saying of the Prophet Sallallahu is actually authentic, right? Uh, mm-hmm. What are some ways that we explore that? Um, what was the context? Who narrated it? You know, what's the chain of transmission? And then you kind of determine, okay, is this a truthful saying, if you will? Is this an authentic saying? And that extends outside of just... Uh, Hadith to, you know, even the secular world, if you will, even to things that non-Muslims say, um, if they make this claim, if they narrate something, is that true, right? And then how do we authenticate that? Um, So these are skills that we learn through our deen that we apply to everything, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because at the end of the day, like, um, all of the universe is God's creation. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what we learn about him, we can apply to everything, Um, and so it's, we need to be really, really uh, wary of this idea of everyone speaking their own truth. It's not an individualistic world. It's not that, um, you know, in this hierarchy of truth, your experiences don't supersede everything else. And I think that's so uncomfortable for us to realize because we want to believe we're the center of the world. And I think this is one of the biggest of liberalism is that it convinces us that our needs and our desires and our choices are at the top of the pyramid and everyone else exists only to fulfill them. And that's simply not true. You know, we have responsibilities to other people. They have rights over us. Um, And we need to recognize the relationships we have within the community. We need to recognize that, you know, if a very popular uh, influencer is saying things like, I'm speaking my truth. Um, that doesn't just impact her life. That impacts the millions of people who follow her and how they begin to understand Islam, uh, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so again, like I think it's so, so important for us to learn our religion properly and to remember that, look, as, as bad as it feels to hear, like you're not the center of the world. Your experiences are not the most meaningful thing. Um, there are in abundance like billions of other people out there, and we have obligations to them and to Osmanlah, of course
2: yeah that um I know I think individualism is a real problem um and the, yeah this kind of very secular and then very individualistic view of islam is is so alien, it's completely the opposite to. The idea of, you know, community and wanting for your sister what you want for yourself. Because really, even the whole reason why we're having this discussion is not because we think we are superior. It's more, um, the way I see this, and, and I know you do as well, is that taking the lesson from, you know, that, you know, every, Muslim, every person will be at loss except those who believe, who do good deeds, and then who advise each other with Sabr and with the truth we have to do that. If we don't do that, um, then we will be at loss. And so um, inshallah, yeah, that's, I think, again, I I hope that, um, you know, that's coming across in in the way that we're discussing it, that at no point do we feel um, we are superior to any other Muslim sister, whether she's wearing hijab or she wants to wear hijab inshallah. Um, Yeah, absolutely. um, And I, Just want to add
3: on this note, like, I am not a scholar, right? I'm not even like some type of advanced student of knowledge. I'm a very like mediocre average Muslim who is just sharing some reflections on what I'm observing. And I'm only doing this from a place of, you know, when I watched uh, the video that came out earlier this week, and when I'm just observing things that are happening in society, it's not from a place of, um, or like a vindicative place, right? Or a place of superiority, like, haha like I managed to keep my hijab on and look at what x y and z is doing like absolutely not it comes from a place of sorrow you mm-hmm. know of like what's what's happening to us like when i have kids in one day like what will happen to them like we need to recognize the urgency of these problems because um I would allow, like god protect me from this but mm-hmm. if i were to ever go down A specific route, would there be people to look out for me to Mm -hmm. kind of say, Iman, like, this is what's going on. You need to be aware of this and kind of support me with empathy and bring me back to the straight path. And so, you know, I don't say anything that I do from a place of, um, inshallah, from a place of superiority, like, may God protect us from that. Mm -hmm. It's really just wanting to be better because we're all like this family you know like we have yes. to look out for each other
2: mm. and if we don't do that no one else will you know yeah, that's right because now then this read this is exactly the thing that we are one family we are one ummah and if we look to our past what like this problem um it's interesting this is not a modern day problem that we have as muslim women we've um our uh, our understanding of uh, the obligation of hijab it's um You know, for a long time there, um, it was never a problem. If we look to our history, only until um, Western nations colonized came into our countries and colonized us. And again, I would encourage everyone to read. I'm going to say a few names, and you know, um, please Google them to to do your own research. But I'm going to give one very clear, blatant example of when Britain occupied Egypt. The um, first Controller General is it, what an interesting name controller general in egypt his name was you know i i what a it name. now they've changed it to ambassador when i looked up not that word doesn't exist now they've changed it to ambassadors um so now the ambassador the, the first controller general in egypt from 1878 to 1879 was a man called lord Comer. and um he had he wrote books about his attitudes about towards um uh, Egyptian, the Muslims um, and the Egyptian women in particular and he he argued that um, basically the way that women are treated um, is basically, he said certain things like I said, Cromer argued that westernised Christianity elevated the status of women while Islam taught that women should be degraded through the veil and segregation based on gender. So he had a very clear, he had a real problem with Islam mm-hmm. he had a problem with that. The fact that women wore hijab, and you think again, and and so what he uh, um, he had a very clear agenda to get women in Egypt to remove their veil. Now, the best way to do that is if you can undermine a person, a person's understanding of their religion. Like forcibly trying to take it off would have had the opposite effect. So then what he did was that he encouraged and influenced. There was this very famous book written by Qasim Amin. He was an Egyptian um, jurist who'd studied in Europe and he was a reformer. He he, self-proclaimed reformer of Islam. And he wrote a book called the liberation of women in which he blamed Egyptians, Egyptian women's veiling, their lack of education and their slavery um, to to Egyptian men to Islam. And so he so Ghassim Amin was influenced by Lord Cromer, and so he writes this book. And then this book is, you know, written read by the elites and the educated people in um, Egypt. And they started to take these ideas on board. And then, and so what you had was that then people started thinking, Yeah, maybe actually, yeah, is hijab causing us to be backward if we became more like the West? And look at the way their women are there, they mix freely with men, they don't cover you know that and so they then started to question the islamic rules and that had a knock on effect on so you know the understanding of the family and then that you know and in islam the family is so important so the mother being there for the family taking care of the family if you take women out of the family and put her into work and into study and um and you've told her that the problem is the thing that's keeping you back is islam then For, uh, you know, for the British in particular in Egypt, it was then a way they had changed the the whole way. Um, Instead of the Egyptians hating the occupation, you now had people who loved their occupiers. And you see they did that in a number of countries. Um, Mm -hmm. And just then um, moving on, there's a a very famous Egyptian feminist called Huda Sharawi. Now, what she did was um, in 1922 she did a public unveiling of herself. And she did this after returning from the International Women's Suffrage Alliance Conference in Rome. And that was a feminist conference. And again, what we see there is that Muslim uh, people and the elites mainly them being influenced very clearly by non-Muslim ideas. after mixing with non-Muslims, they got influenced. Um, And so and then, you you know, you could we could look at other countries with quite a similar pattern. But the thing that we see here is that Muslims didn't have a problem. I told you it wasn't even an issue. Sometimes people say, why do we keep talking about hijab? Why are we obsessed with it? Now, the thing is, we are not. But we can't um, if people are going to. So back then in in Egypt, the Muslims didn't have I'm sure there weren't no, that's, that's not right of me to say that. Were they able to counteract this, you know, this um, onslaught and this attack against hijab? Now, the, unfortunately, they weren't able to. And what happened was they, the religious, you know, the kind of uneducated Muslims, you know, and that's not a derogatory term, but the ones who, what they did, they just became quite conservative. And they thought, no, we need to, like, keep our women at home even more to protect them from this.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and that wasn't... The best thing to do what we need what we really need to do is understand is to uh understand okay if lord as an example lord Cromer, he was doing this in egypt but at the same time he was the head of the anti-suffrage movement in england um and he was against women in britain getting the vote and what right. we, yeah and so so it was it was complete hypocrisy and what we can say yeah. is he wasn't actually a feminist at all he didn't care about the Egyptian women and their liberation. He just realised, I can use these liberal ideas to, um, to to help the occupation that we are doing in Britain. It justifies the occupation, and um, and I think so. It's worth understanding the history behind where we are today, because yes. it ha- you know, because do you? Because what I'm thinking that that was the in the past. That was like the really blatant, you know, attack on hijab. Um, But do you think that that still happens now, but in a more subtle way?
3: Absolutely. I think this idea of like divide and conquer is something that the British uh, excelled at. They, you know, perfected it and it's utilized all over the world now. So this idea of like dividing um, men against women and convincing Um, you know, these like Muslim countries, particularly Muslim women, that it's Muslim men who are oppressing them, that um, it's the men who are forcing you to veil yourselves and seclude yourselves uh, from the sight of society. um, And you need to rebel against them and you need to agitate for your rights and you need to take off your veil. You know, Um, this is the technique that has been you know, used all over the world um, by colonizers. And then even in recent history, we see how the U.S., um, one of the justifications for invading Afghanistan um, was this, a uh, manufactured sob story about how you know Afghan women are being oppressed, um, that we need to go liberate them and we need to save them. And that's why, uh, you know, the military, the US military needs to invade the country um, mm. and completely decimate it, of course. Like look at look at the state of Afghanistan now. Um, after more than a decade, uh, US occupation has not improved the condition of that country. It's only made it worse. Um, and so we see how women are used as tokens in this way for greater aims, you know, whether that's political uh, pursuit of power, whether that's financial uh, ambitions that these colonizers or imperialists have, um, you know, whether it's just a desire to advance their own philosophies and ideologies about the world, you um, we need to recognize whether women are being used as tokens in this way, especially when that type of tokenism is dressed in the garb of feminism because on the surface, it seems as if women are being empowered, um, but actually we're just being reduced uh, you know into objects we're just being used you know uh, and I think this is. Again, this is not just something that we see in politics or in, on a major like nation state level, but this is in a very insidious way. What we see with, um, you know, to bring it back to influencers, like what we see with them as well is uh, how they kind of think about success, what they view as success or a thriving um a job or career, uh, whether that really empowers women or whether it just reduces us into our bodies again, you know, like, have we really progressed from being seen as just mere objects for male pleasure, um, or when we post to these, like, beautifully photoshopped selfies um, with specific contours of our body on display, um, you know, are we really being liberated from the male gaze? Are we really, um, being respected as, you know, uh, you know, divine creations, you know, is our sanctity being appreciated in this way? Um, and I have to say, no, you know, like, I really don't think that we are being empowered through these types of actions. I think we are falling into the same type of capitalistic, um view uh that popular society has about women where we are just our bodies and we just extract uh financial gain or worldly success from from using our bodies in this way and it's really unfortunate you know because our bodies are in a mana and this is what Mm -hmm. i write about in the article is that it's a trust from allah ta'ala that he He gave us these physical forms, not so we display them and parade them, particularly for the gaze of people who don't even know us or like us, you know, but just for his worship. That's what we're here for. Um, so we need to return to that type of God consciousness again. And this is true for both men and women, you know, women who may display their form and men who may view the form. Um, that is a violation of the Amana as well as when Muslim men look at women they should not be looking
2: at and engage with influencers or, you know, any woman in that way. I think that, yeah, we can, that I think there are things that um, we can do. Like, for example, one of the, you know, the, um, we should think very carefully about the culture that we are consuming where you know any any popular culture whether it's on um uh if it is if you know if we we choose who we follow so if there are you know so we shouldn't follow if we have a if we don't like it when the um uh you know muslim influencers do certain things you know then we shouldn't follow them they only exist because um partly I know there's also you know everyone can buy fake followers so that's an, <laughs> and you can buy views so there's definitely that going on but um we shouldn't consume that which sh- if we if they don't have a platform that we're consuming them on then you know like we just we, and, we, and even about our own mental health and our own view of um understanding for some we should not follow people who are going to make us who are not going to bring us closer to Allah I think that's one of the things I've now started to do that I've i removed anyone who doesn't make me, uh, more God conscious. I don't want to see their videos. I don't want to see their pictures. Um, right. what advice, what else do you think we could do to, um, about this, you know, uh, about, in, you know, what we've spoken about, what could we practically do? Um, yeah. So I think in general, like curating your consumption
3: is really important. So, uh, anything you, view through your eyes or basically anything you consume through your five senses you should be very deliberate about because that has tangible impact not just on this world but the next um, and it's not always, just about your relationship with with Allah, but also your relationship with yourself. So if you're constantly viewing um, these Instagram personalities who have, let's say, for example, a small nose, right? And this is something that is really prominent in our community, right? (laughs) You'll want a small nose and you'll begin to kind of question your self-beauty and your worth and your et cetera, et cetera. So it's not always just about you know, religion or Allah kind of ta'ala although that is the most important thing to be wary of, it's also how you view yourself and how you view the samana he's given you. He made you in the best form, right? Mm-hmm. He knew better. So being conscious of that. And this is something that, you know, that you are influenced by not just Muslim personalities, by non-Muslim ones as well. Um, so I, I would say like being conscious of what you're seeing through your eyes, what you're listening to, the type of music, type of TV shows um, the books you're reading, like being really, really deliberate about all of those things is important. Um, and then of course, like connecting with Islam in a really authentic, traditional way. So like taking the time to really learn, um, spending time in the company of people who are um, maybe further down this path uh, towards Allah than you, you know, who may have more knowledge, just sitting in their company is so important, even if it's not Specifically, to learn um, something, just hanging out with them is really important because at least you'll save yourself from things like backbiting or, um, you know, definitely things like shirk, but um, even like small sins that we kind of think are not that important, but really are, Um, you know, just being in their company that will protect you. And I think things like mentorship are so important in that regard of like making sure that particularly young Muslim women, but now increasingly even older Muslim women, um, identifying people who really celebrate their faith and have, you know, have accomplished something um, because of their faith and not Mm -hmm. in despite of it, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) people who, recognize how Los Manapella has opened doors for them, um, you know, reaching out to them and learning from them and being there for one another.
2: Well yeah, I was just well, one last thing I was gonna what you were just saying that I think also we need to I think we have to be very careful what we share. Yeah, as in, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to Islamic knowledge. Uh, so, for like, I'll give you an example. Someone, alhamdulillah, they they actually, I'm happy they sent it to me because it's helped me with my uh, when I was researching this topic. That it was an article in the Huffington Post, and it was Huffington Post C A, so that's a Canadian one. And it had in the title. Now, this is again, this is uh, the uh, we need to be very careful who we gain Islamic knowledge from. The title said Muslim scholars who. Um, Say um the hijab is not an obligation. It was something like that, but it was quite a very clear title that here are Muslim scholars who say hijab is not an obligation. Then and then the way it was written it was very well written. The name of the journalist was so it's Huffington Post. So you think oh that's credible. The name of the author was um, the writer was Muslim, and then it had um five or six different names. Now when I checked each one. I'll be honest. Every single one was dubious. Um, mm-hmm. As in, I couldn't find their who again. Like you said, where did they study? Where's their Islamic studies from? Or it was very vague. Um, that when or you couldn't find. I couldn't find links to where they where they had come from. And then in every paragraph, there was no evidence. There was no ayah, no hadith. No who is the tafsir? Who's tafsir are they basing it on? They some said Muslim mystics. Some just used some words but it was written as if this is fact and this is the truth right. and then when i googled the author he's he's co-authored a book on um basically islam and how islam uh, on the topic of um same sex marriages and how it's permissible and how it should be permissible mm-hmm. so then um and then i looked at the other articles he wrote which were all relating to lgbt not all of them a majority so now um but if you just if you just read the article you would believe what they said that yeah there are valid opinions that and there've are scholar, scholars islamic scholars who've done this so now so what i guess what i'm saying is that we need to check thoroughly the sort who the writers are what the sources are and then we shouldn't share that information with uh, those links with you know those articles mm-hmm. until we check you know because yeah. that will just add to the confusion um This is the era of fake news, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we need to be really aware
3: of that, especially like if you live in the US, you have Trump as your president, you know, how big of a problem fake news is, and all Mm -hmm. over the world, you know, people know that, you know, those WhatsApp forwards you get from Mm -hmm. aunties are are not like some (laughs) factual, (laughs) they're not like factual uh, Mm -hmm. statements, right? Like we are discerning when it comes to uh, Auntie shagufta and the community sending us the cure for coronavirus, but we're not discerning when it's, you know, Ahmed XYZ writing a beautiful paper in the Huffington Post. Mm. But we need to be right. We need to realize everyone has an agenda. Everyone yes. has a specific philosophy they're trying to forward um, or promote to people. And so we need to be discerning in that as well. Mm-hmm.
2: yes alhamdulillah well jazakallah khair iman um so you can all read the article on uh traversing tradition i would definitely we didn't actually cover all the points in there so mm-hmm. it's deb- that is one article that, inshallah i would recommend to forward to your friends and family um, <laughs> and, um inshallah yeah inshallah iman, uh, iman you must come on again you know uh because i'm sure i would that, love to yeah this we could speak about uh, but inshallah take care and um Again, you know, Javakala has so much for taking the time to come on.
3: Thank you, Wayaki. It was my pleasure.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers.